I'm excited about this. Exodus chapter 17, probably, to be honest, one of my favorite passages to preach um, in Exodus. It's just such a unique passage, and there's so much there. And so my hope is that we can get some of that out tonight um, as we look at Exodus chapter 17. So let me go to the Lord in prayer, and we will, we will begin. Father, thank you so much for your kindness in allowing us this privilege tonight to be together. Father, we thank you for this space, this opportunity. Uh, God, of course, we thank you for your word, which is the reason why we have come to study, to look to your word. Father, we ask that you help us during this season to always be mindful, uh, as, as always, Father, but even more so this season, to be mindful of who you are and what you were doing in our life, in our world. And God, make us thankful. Help us to be radiant lights into the darkness of this world, just as Christ has come to do. Father, during this time. And so all of the events at our church, I pray for our choir as they lead us tomorrow night and Sunday, God, that you would be glorified in every, every note that is sung, every part of that, of that uh, time together, God, that you would be exalted and glorified and that we as a church would be edified. Father, help us just to be faithful in all things, just as you are faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off our place last time in two weeks ago in chapter 16. Um, and in chapter 16, remember, the people of God have been traveling through the wilderness. They have left Egypt. That's behind them. Um, Moses sang the song of rejoicing in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, immediately the people begin to grumble, it says. They're walking through the wilderness, they're looking for food, they're kind of sizing it up and there's nothing there. So they grumble against the Lord for bringing them out, not uh, even saying things like we'd rather go back to Egypt where we had food, but now they're grumbling and they're looking for it and the Lord comes through. Because remember what happened, the Lord provides food for them and, the, and he provides the, the manna the bread from heaven that is on the ground every day, and he lays it out for them how it will be provided, what they are to do. You only take enough for that day, for give us this day our daily bread, right? We only have enough for that day. Why? Because we trust God is going to do it tomorrow. By only taking enough for the day is a trusting of God to provide again and again. And then they said on that on that sixth day, you take enough for the sixth day and the seventh. Because there in chapter 16 of Exodus, the Lord again establishes for his people the Sabbath rest. We saw the Sabbath rest back in Genesis chapter 1, uh, where the Lord established that by how he handled creation. Six days he created, on the seventh day he rested. He lays the framework for that. But here, again, the Lord reestablishes before even the, the commandment was given in Exodus 20 to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Lord establishes the Sabbath by them by saying you take enough on that sixth day for the sixth day and the seventh day because on that seventh day there will be rest and he'll provide all you need there. So you, you see how the Lord has provided for his people the bread that is given for them every single day. He's meeting their needs as they walk through the wilderness. There should be little question of God's faithfulness. There should be little question that God will provide for them. 
there has been no evidence anywhere that he is going to leave them stranded in the wilderness. There's been no evidence anywhere that he's going to let them starve to death. There's been no evidence anywhere that he's not strong enough, mighty enough, or powerful enough to protect them against whatever may come. In fact, all of the evidence is stacked up in this case by the fact that the Lord will provide for them, he will protect them, and he will be with them. Provision, protection, presence, all of those are words that start with a P that remind us of what God has promised and what he has not only promised but demonstrated for us. Because remember, we not only have the promises of God, but we have a full lifetime and history of the demonstration of God fulfilling his promises, right? I remind my children that. Allison and I talk about that. We look back in our own life, much like yourself, where there's nowhere we can look back and say, God left us stranded. There's nowhere we can look back and say, God has forgotten us. God has left us in a situation that was helpless and did not provide the help we needed. There's no place like that. So it is for Israel. God has not only made his promise, he has provided. And so that pillar of cloud, by day, that pillar of fire by night, the presence of God is with them, the provision of God in the manna every single morning, all that they need, the protection of God over against the enemies and all other things. Even the protection of God is seen, as we'll see later, just to give you, in that pillar of cloud by day, which protects them from the sun of the wilderness and the desert so as they will not be uh, beaten down by the sun. Even that is, is, is expressed in these chapters. God is caring for his people. And so the grumbling started and God answers. Like I said last week when the, or two weeks ago, when the grumbling begins, you're kind of like, all right, I, I mean, I can see it. You're, tra you're traveling, you're working through, you got a lot of people moving through the desert in the wilderness. You got a lot of stuff going on and you can see some grumbling. I mean, we get that with, with people we know. Probably not anybody in your family never grumbles. But people I know do, do, so you can say that. And so ultimately you, you, you can see that maybe. But before long, the grumbling begins to wear on us, right? Even as we read this, you start like, why, why do they keep grumbling? Well, chapter 17 is going to happen again. But chapter 17, in a surprising way, even escalates higher. So if you look with me to what's going on in chapter 17, God has provided for his people. And then he says in chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Now, what we see is you have the people of Israel moving from station to station in place in the wilderness. They move on from one to the next. They're headed somewhere. We'll find they're headed to Mount Sinai, right, where God will reveal himself. So they're moving on to say all of the people, all of the congregation is moving but what, how are they moving, and what is the one, who is the one leading them? It's not Moses who is getting up and saying, let's go, right? It's the Lord. The Lord commands them when to go. He commands them when to stop. He commands them when to stay. How does the Lord command that? In these passages, he commands it by that presence, that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. We'll find out a little bit later. Whenever God says to Moses, you can go. And Moses says, I'm not going unless you go. You know, if you go, I'll go. If you stay, I'm staying. Well, that was that pillar of cloud and pillar of, of fire 
that moved. And when it moved, you moved. You went. God was leading his people. And so ultimately, as we talked about in Genesis, we see it again in Exodus, as we've talked about all the way throughout this, the main character of Scripture is who? God himself. He's, this is his story that he's writing with these people. He's, he's saying, here's who I am. And, and now especially, he's letting them know who he is. And so God is leading his people out. Moses is just the under-shepherd, if you will, leading the people as the, the vice-regent, if you will, leading the people based upon what God's leadership is. And so here... They move according to the commandment of the Lord. He's leading them. And they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Remember last time, there was no food. This time, there's no water. The two things we need for sustenance to live every day, food and water, right? And so there's no food. And now you get to chapter 17, we got a similar problem to what we had in chapter 16. There's no water. Well, obviously, what's going to happen? Obviously, the people of Israel are going to go, well, y'all know, God provided bread for us back in the last chapter. Obviously, he'll provide water. No way will God leave us here to die without water. He's provided the bread. Remember back how we got out of Egypt? I mean, he struck the Nile and that thing turned to blood. Surely he can do it again and bring water about. Let's just trust the Lord to provide, right? Isn't that how it worked? I mean, but isn't that the obvious way we should look at this? Isn't it what we should think should happen next? I mean, why in the world would you doubt God again? But not only did they doubt God, the doubting escalates here. In fact, if you read on, let's do that. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. This word quarreled is different than the word we got before that was translated grumbled. Y'all see what I'm saying? The word grumbled kind of gives an idea. Uh, I mean, y'all know some people that grumble, don't you? Just think about them right now. And so it kind of gives that idea of, of grumbling or complaining about some things. Like, my goodness, this room is okay, but... This seat is killing me right now. Some of y'all already grumbled that in your heart. You might as well grumble it out loud. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some of the grumbling or complaining, we, we get grumbling. We get that kind, of, that kind of stuff. But this word quarreled is much deeper. In fact, this is a word that brings about an idea of a charge that is being brought in a courtroom. In other words, he's, they're coming here and, 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 and they come up to Moses. And this time, instead of just grumbling about they got no water, they're bringing an accusation and a charge, like a plaintiff versus a defendant. We're bringing an accusation. This is courtroom language that they are using. There is a quarrel we have. We have a charge to bring. They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you bring a charge against me? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The Lord is the one moving them. He's the one commanding them from place to place. Moses is saying, am I really the leader here? The Lord is the one leading you. Why are you fussing at me when it's the Lord? Bring your test to the Lord if that's what you want to do. But why do you do that? For the Lord has been faithful. So Moses responds, why do you quarrel with me? And just to see how intense this is, 
this stepping it up of more than just grumbling. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, and I bet he was crying. Y'all know what I'm saying? He wasn't just calling out. Moses was like, Lord, what in the world? These people are crazy. What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Moses is recognizing that this is not just a grumbling here. They're bringing literal charges against me that I have brought them out here to die, and they're ready to kill me, basically. They're angry enough to kill me. So the escalation has happened. These people are angry. They're testing God, and they are going after Moses, the only one they can go after at this point, and saying, look how bad this is. And Moses is fearful for his life. Moses considers his life is under threat. They are looking to harm him. They're ready to stone me. So the Lord speaks now to Moses, and he gives him a plan. Here they are. The Lord says, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So the Lord speaks. Now, it's important that we understand this scene. The scene really is a scene of a courtroom. You have plaintiffs, and you have a defendant. You have the people that are, grump, are quarreling, bringing a charge against the defendant. The defendant being Moses at this point. But Moses says, it's not really me, it's God. You're bringing a charge against God. And so ultimately, the Lord says, if that's what the people want, if they want a trial, we'll give them a trial. We'll give them a trial. You take the staff, the staff which represents authority, that staff which goes back to Genesis 49, that shall not pass from Judah, because it's God's staff that represents God's authority, that was on display whenever, whenever uh, the Nile was struck, which he mentions, that staff which demonstrates the authority of God that Moses has. And so you take that staff and you pass before the people and you get the elders together, the leaders of these tribes, you get them together. They're going to act as the jury, if you will. They're going to come up and be like the jury that you'll have to make your case before them. You get your staff, you pass before the people, you bring the elders and you convene the court. That's what you do. And I'll stand on the rock. Now this scene uh, is what we call a theophany. Kind of a, a, an interesting theophany. It's, a, it's an appearance of God in the Old Testament. We've seen something like this before. If I can jog your memory. In Genesis chapter 15, if you remember, God created a covenant with his people, with Abraham. He creates a covenant with Abraham. And how you would handle a covenant back in those days where two groups come together and make promises. If you remember, we discussed this. Genesis 15, it wasn't but a couple weeks ago. We, he, he, he does this. And so how you would, how you would uh, cut a covenant, it was literally called cutting a covenant. How you would do this was you would take some animals and you would literally slice those animals in half. You would cut them in two. And you would spread them apart so as in between them was this path of blood with these animals on each side. And in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord tells Abraham to do just that. 
cut the animals, the bulls, the goats, even some, some birds, cut them in half and set them, in, set them uh, uh, over against each other. And then the two parties that are coming in covenant together would pass through that walkway of blood with these animals on either side. And when that happens, they're basically saying, we will keep our end of the promise that we're making, our end of the covenant, and if we do not, let what happens to these animals happen to us. It's a blood covenant. We pass through, let them happen to us. And if you remember, Abraham set up the ritual in Genesis 15. He set up the situation, and then he fell asleep. Man after my own heart. Abraham falls asleep, and while this deep sleep comes over him, he sees this vision of this pot that comes that is smoking, if you will, representing God himself coming down. And what Abraham sees in this is that God passes through this cut covenant. He passes between these animals, and Abraham does not. And if you remember when we discussed this, God is saying this covenant will come to pass on my life, not even on yours. If it doesn't, I will take the punishment. I will take the penalty. It will come to pass on my life, which is why we can say ultimately, if you remember this, it's why we say that Jesus was cut for the 12 tribes, right? Because Jesus is going to be the one who takes the penalty that he does not deserve because the people of God did not keep their end of the bargain. Jesus comes to keep the covenant bargain that God promised he would keep from the beginning. What we have here is a similar situation. We have here Moses coming with the staff, the authority of God, and the elders there as the jury standing before the people. In other words, even though God has done nothing wrong, he's letting the charge be made against him. And there on the rock, there on the rock, it tells us that God comes down, right? He says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Here, they have zero right to bring a charge against God. God has done absolutely nothing wrong but remain faithful in every aspect, providing everything they need. They've got zero right to bring this charge, yet God hears their charge. And there on the rock, the glory of God comes down and stands upon it again. And God, though he has done nothing wrong, takes the judgment that Moses delivers by striking that rock, the presence of God. And when he strikes the rock, what comes out? Water. The provision of the people. You see, in this imagery then, God is allowing himself to go to trial, though he is not guilty, though he's done nothing wrong, so as he can show his people that whatever quarrel they may bring, I will speak, I will step in on your behalf. Just like he did before in Genesis 15 and showed them, I'm going to make sure you get safely home, even if it's on me that I'll take the punishment. He's doing it here. I'll take the punishment now so that you can drink and have the provision you need. I'll take it. I'll take it. 
So ultimately, that's the scene. And what we know is that from that point forward, everywhere they go, what does Moses have to do? Strike the rock again? No, 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 don't do that. Because if you remember, that's exactly why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. In Numbers, you can turn there to that scene, Numbers chapter 20. The people are traveling through. Moses has already dealt with the, he's already dealt with the spies who didn't believe. Now they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And in chapter 20, they come back to these waters at Meribah, and the people grumble and complain again. And Moses is like, what do I do with these ridiculous people? And the Lord, the glory of the Lord says in verse 6, the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, same way before, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels. You see, y'all, Moses had enough. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all know where this is on the journey. Any of y'all that's ever took your kids somewhere for longer than three hours, you know at some point you're like, all right, listen up, you rebels, you nasty people. Moses is fed up. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water out from this rock? Moses says. Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. In anger, Moses strikes the rock, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses there, because you did not believe in me to uphold me holy as in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I'd given you. The reason why Moses was not allowed into the promised land is because this incident happens again and Moses does not do what God said. Instead of speaking to the rock to pour forth, Moses strikes the rock again. And you may say, God, that's a pretty harsh punishment for Moses, right? I mean, Moses is sitting there and he's led these people. He got him out of Jethro's field. He brought him over to Egypt. He's gone through the whole stuff with Pharaoh. He, did, he sang a beautiful song after we passed through the, the, the Red Sea. It was a great song. He sings again. He went up to Sinai. He received the Ten Commandments. His face glowed. I mean, all that Moses has been through, these people been complaining, and they are hard to get along with. And, and nobody even really would like them if you were with them. And, and so Moses has done all of this. And now you get to this one intense moment where they're complaining after God has been faithful. And Moses does what God says not to do. And he strikes the rock. And God looks at him and says, you're not getting in. Why? Because God has already taken that judgment. And what's sure is God is not going to take the judgment twice. And the first judgment that God took is enough to supply the needs of the people for all eternity, if he so pleases. 
God had already taken the judgment. He'd already taken the punishment. He's not taking it again. And when he says to Moses, speak to the rock, then all he's doing is calling upon the greatness and the favor of God to step in on behalf of his people over again. But when he tells him to strike the rock, Moses acts in anger, not believing that speaking to it would be enough, but he strikes it again, not believing in God's provision for his people. And God says, you can't get in. You can't get in. Now, I find this to be fascinating. And, and why? Ultimately, because this points us directly to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you remember, two weeks ago, we looked at this passage. First Corinthians 10, yeah, I think I'm right. And Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What Paul is saying then, he goes on just to kind of continue, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says that rock was Christ. This is typological language. It's a type. It's a picture of. Is he saying it's literally Christ? No, he's saying it's a picture that shows us what Christ has done for us on our behalf. And no, think about that then. That rock was Christ. And remember that scene. Charges were brought up against God. You've left us out here to die. God goes on trial himself. When God had done nothing wrong, God goes on trial himself and takes the judgment of the people against him and accepts that judgment as penalty and punishment that he will pay for himself. And God himself takes the penalty that was required for the quarreling and bickering against him. And he provides water for them through that. His provision comes from the judgment he takes when he's done nothing wrong. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly what Christ has done for us. We are the sinners. We're the ones who deserved death and the judgment is against us, not against him. Yet he goes to trial. And when he goes to trial, though he had done nothing wrong, he takes the punishment that we deserve on our behalf and he is struck. He is struck for us. And it is no coincidence and it's not just some little happenstance in history that the scriptures tell us while Jesus is hanging on that cross, the spear strikes his side and water flows out. That's not just some little piece. That's the imagery and picture that this one is taking what we deserve, the judgment we should have. He's taking that for us. And from his taking of that judgment, we have life. We can drink. The provisions we need are there. That's why Jesus says in John 6, eat my flesh and drink my blood is the only way you're going to live. He's not telling us to be cannibals by any stretch of the imagination. He's telling us 
He's telling us that our sustenance, how we survive for eternity, is not found in bread and water here. Our sustenance is Christ itself. What gives us life is the one who took the punishment on our behalf, the judgment that we deserve. That's what gives us life. And so it's Augustus Top Lady in the 18th century who writes these lyrics of rock of ages cleft for me, right? That rock that is my rock that I look to, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, safe from wrath and make me pure. Ultimately, that's exactly what he's drawing out as this one took our punishment and our payment like that rock in the wilderness and provided the water for the people. Christ Jesus is that rock. And we learn there that to deny that rock would be like Moses. Because Jesus is not taking that punishment again. The first sacrifice, the first time was enough. And to think he has to be re-sacrificed and take your judgments again and again is for you to misunderstand him or not know him. His sacrifice on our behalf is plenty for us. And it flows richly for us. That's what this passage is saying. So it was like Moses, by striking that rock again, was saying that first sacrifice was not enough. That first judgment's not enough. We need more. We don't need any more. And to strike it goes worse than the grumbling. It goes worse than the complaining. It goes worse than all of those things. To act like we need more than Christ is to disbelieve who Christ is and what he's done for us in the first place. And if you think you need more than Christ and he's not sufficient and he's not enough, then you won't enter the promised land either is ultimately the point. Moses, in anger, displays that that wasn't enough. And God says, Moses, they can grumble all they want to. And even in their grumbling, I'm still going to give them water. I'm still going to be sufficient. I'm still going to keep my end of the promise. God is faithful and he always has been. Even when we grumble and complain. And, and my friends, let's don't be so foolish as to think we are a little bit higher and mightier than these Israelites. Because in reality, we question God all the time. Are you there? Are you here? Are you letting me do that? Why am I having to go through this? Why am I having to get into this wilderness? We get in the wilderness of our, my, our life, whether it's sickness and illness or whatever else, and the first thing we want to do is question God as to why these things may happen. That's the same grumbling and complaining the Israelites do. When God says, my grace is sufficient what I provide for you is enough. It's enough. And it's here every day. It's here every day. The very next passage is interesting. Then go straight into Amalek. Israel's walking through. They're no, not equipped in any way to fight anybody, right? They're not an army. And here comes the Amalek and his army and fought Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, hey, choose for us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. 
sounds like a good plan. Hey, get some dudes out there, and y'all go fight, okay? Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with a staff and God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought, and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Then the Lord says to, Mo, to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Ultimately, the Lord is my banner is the rallying cry of the people. Who do we fight for and for whose glory do we stand? And what we see in these two passages is we see that God is going to provide for his people. And God is going to protect his people. The main, the main leader, the main character here is God himself. And what you see is this wasn't Joshua's glorious plan of how he's going to fight them. They only won because God was fighting for them. And you also see that they have to be united to be able to do this. Because Joshua takes them in and fights Moses does his part and raises his hands, and then Aaron and her come in and help him. In other words, if you divide yourselves, not in some way as to divide amongst yourselves, but if you separate yourself from God and go after him and attack, you're going to lead to destruction, right? That's what you see here with the first part. Divided, you will fall. United, together, under God, you will survive and make it. And so the people of God recognize, even here, that God will provide for them and God will protect them. And here we see the glory of God in the fact that even in the midst of war, his people are victorious when they should never have been. His people are victorious because he does it for them. Again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, all of these things happen so that we can learn what can we learn? We can learn in life that in every step, in every way, God has provided for us. He's the water, right? Jesus says, you drink the water I provide, you'll never thirst again. That's that same rock that is there for us. This is the one who provides the water that we need, the very life that we need. He's that one. He's the one that protects us. It's because of Christ Jesus that we will be victorious. Do whatever you want to do in life. Try to figure out whatever you want to figure out, how to win something, beat something, overcome something. The only way you win it, beat it, or overcome it is through Christ Jesus the Lord. It's the only way. It's so arrogant to think you could do it on your own. It's so arrogant to think you could do it in your own power. It's Christ that has done this for us. And so here, there's no reason for the people of God to even think that they've won this battle in their own strength and in their own power. It's God who's fought for them. You lower the arms, you lose. Raise them up, you win. God says, here it is. Get together, work, to understand these things. And so it is for us. These things happen for our lessons in life. And may we not quickly forget them. 
that God has provided all that we need by taking the punishment we deserve himself. Jesus was cut in half for the people of God. He fulfilled the covenant promises that we didn't keep. Jesus was struck for the people of God. He took the punishment that we deserve so that we could drink the water of life. Jesus fought for the people of God. And he fought in such a way so as he did not hold his own hands up, but they were nailed to a cross. And there, there by raising his hands on that cross, he demonstrated the fact that he will fight for his people so that they win, ultimately win. We need not look anywhere else. We need not look anywhere else. He is enough. The people of God see these things. Hopefully we learn these things and we fight just as we say, just as we live. The Lord is my banner. He's the one we rally under. He's the one we look to. And everyone who comes and keeps their hand on the throne is an imagery picture of where we are doing what God has called us to do as the king. The Lord is our banner. We do what he calls us to do. That victory comes. We'll do this tomorrow night. There is another king. As the choir leads us in worship, it points back to Acts chapter 17 whenever charges and allegations were made against the people of God in Athens. And what did they say? These people are the ones that say there's another king besides Caesar. They've turned the world upside down. So it is for us. We say there's a king that we serve and we honor. Jesus Christ our Lord. So I hope and pray that that's, that's our banner as we walk and live. Lord, help us in all of these things. You're kind to us. May you be glorified in every aspect of our life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you Sunday. We'll see you all the time.